Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. If you support the mission of Studs and you dig the program, I've got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head on over to patreon.com slash studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I offer a range of rewards for your support. You get some cool stuff for a couple bucks a month. And I'd like to seize this moment to shout out a brand new Studs patron, Justin Jackson. Now, Justin Jackson, as you may recall, kicked off season five just a couple weeks ago. If you haven't listened to his episode, you definitely should. Listen, Justin Jackson was a perfect guest. He thinks intently and intensely about work. He's totally game. He thrives on the vulnerability of open conversation. He's an amazing guy. And I was thrilled to have met him. Honored, really. And the fact that he joined me in conversation on this podcast and the fact that he was so available and so vulnerable was more than enough. Then right after his episode aired, he went over to patreon.com slash studs and signed up as a patron. And that makes me feel so good. His support means the world to me. And it's not just because he's such a sterling advocate for podcasting, but it's because I'd like to imagine that his experience as a guest and as a listener means something to him. And so he wants to support what we're doing. So Justin Jackson, thank you so much for being a patron of the podcast. I'm not overstating it. It's truly an honor. And my dear listener, if the time isn't right for you to donate to studs, I get it. We're good. Totally. But it would mean the world to me. If you could just tell a pal or two about this podcast, maybe just forward the link to your favorite episode. And it's entirely possible that this could be your favorite episode. Now listen, I have the pleasure of speaking with a lot of hardworking people on this podcast, but I would be hard pressed to think of a guest that works harder than this one. Zach Miller is an ultra runner. In fact, he's one of the best ultra runners in the world. Now, I had not really planned on interviewing professional athletes on this podcast. My mission for studs is to explore the work experiences of people who, I don't know, maybe people who ordinarily don't get airtime. But I had a guest on season three. You might remember her. Her name is Kira Jackson. She's the nurse midwife who brought studs into 2021. Well, Kira asked me if I could get an ultra runner on the show. And I cherish my conversation with Kira so much that I was committed to pursue her request. I mean, come on, this woman brings life into the world. How could I not, right? Problem is, I don't know any ultra runners. And yo, I didn't really have time to look for one. But like a couple days after Kira's episode aired, a lovely listener called Terry Newman from Lancaster, Pennsylvania emailed me and he said, hey man, I know a guy, sort of a hometown hero. He runs these insane hundred mile races through the mountains of France. You want me to put you in touch? Uh, please and thank you. 
Terry Newman made it happen, Zach was game, and the runners hit their marks. Zach takes us on his journey. He discusses how to be simultaneously mindful and mindless as he grapples with various kinds of extreme pain, some of which he loves. Zach is a competitor, a world-class athlete, and a super nice dude. He's developed a lot of hard-earned wisdom by taking one step at a time. So join me on this lovely trail run as I endeavor to keep up with Zach Miller. Zach Miller, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for joining me here. How do you describe what you do? Well, to put it simply, I'm just a runner. <laughs> and you run distances that are unimaginable to most of us. You run in conditions that are truly daunting. You are what they call an ultra runner. Can you just kind of describe for those of us who might not know about ultra running what ultra running is? Sure. So by definition, ultra running is just any distance run that is longer than a marathon. Normally, the standard distances are 50 miles here in the U.S., 100 kilometers, uh, 100 miles, and then timed events, which can be, they can kind of be anything but like 24-hour races where you just see how far you can run in 24 hours. And then there's also crazy 200-mile races, and there's multi-day races, and but basically, as long as it's longer than a marathon, it's an ultra. And that's the type of running I specialize in. And it really seems like the effort is to push the boundaries of human exertion. It seems like some of these ultra runs are quite epic. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Epic and maybe a little insane <laughs> um, <laughs> a little for years and years we've focused on races like the 10k and the 5k and the mile and the 800 and they all became well they became what they were a race against the clock against competitors to see how fast you could go and ultra running is still a race against each other it's a race against the clock but it's also very much a race against yourself and kind of a race against the capabilities of a human being. So ultra runners are really interested in like, how far can we go, you know, and how fast can we do it? But largely how far can we go and how long can we endure? It just gets really, really crazy. In fact, there's a race put on by a man in Tennessee where there's no set distance or time limit to the race. There's just a set course. There's a, a loop on the roads and a loop on the trails. And at, during the day, I believe they run the trail loop. And during the night, they run the road loop. And they have to complete one loop every hour until there's only one person left. So the, the race really has an infinite potential. It just goes until there's only one person standing. And it sounds crazy. You think no one would want to do a race like that, but it's like exploded. And now they have these races all over the world 
and then they can test like a world championship event for it in Tennessee. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty wild. Hmm. The sheer intensity of that strikes me as equal parts repellent and attractive. Now, I think most people who think about distance running, they envision groups of people pounding the pavement. But you run in the dark, in the snow, in the ice, the mud and the muck. I'm curious about the work of sustaining your mental acuity in these long runs on sometimes very difficult terrain. When you're running on the road, there is a certain zone that you can fall into and you just keep going and going and going. But I think if we're all honest, there's also a certain amount of boredom (laughs) that sets in. Oh, for sure. But ultra running is often like in the mountains. And I mean, it is also on the road, but most of what I do is in the mountains or on the trails or in the forest. And that tends to be very entertaining. I mean, why do people enjoy hiking? They go out and hike for hours and hours and hours. And well, they're seeing lots of really cool stuff. And in ultra running, it's the same. We run these races and we, you know, and we go over mountain passes and we see lakes and we see rivers and we see, you know, animals out in the forest that keeps you mentally engaged. Hmm. But then you also have to kind of focus on like, actually what you're doing (laughs) and trying to go fast and trying to be efficient and trying to take care of your body. It definitely does take a lot of, I guess, mental fortitude. You just have to have this kind of like drive in you that really keeps you mentally engaged so that you just keep pressing. But then when you're out there training and things, and even when you're racing, you also really have to enjoy it. And so when you enjoy it, then I think your mind handles it better but it always does get to that point usually where it's also really hard so so then maybe it's kind of hard to describe how you keep your mind where it needs to be i don't know you just kind of find a way to do it and i think you train your body and you train your mind at the same time so when it gets to the hard parts in the race you're kind of like oh well i've felt this in training and your mind just kind of like knows what to do to some extent Can you give me a sense of whether the effort is to focus your mind on the task at hand versus letting your mind just sort of go so that you can get into a flow, so that you can be in a zone? For me, it's not necessarily one or the other. It can be either of those two things. When I I first started into the sport... I remember one of the early races that I ran was a a race called the Lake Sonoma 50, a 50 mile race out in California. It was in a place I had never been. It was a a trail I had never run. And so to me that day, the race was just kind of like a big adventure. And I just wanted to go out and enjoy it and explore. And I think that helped me mentally that day. You're competing, but you're also just kind of like, you're distracting yourself from the pain of what you're doing by just enjoying what's around you and just kind of, I guess, getting into the zone that way, where you're just kind of like, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I feel like the rhythm and flow 
of my pace and my stride. And you just kind of sink into that. What does it feel like when you're thoroughly dialed in? It actually feels really good. Basically, every little thing that you have that goes right is like a little morale booster during the race. And that might just be like, okay, I ran that last downhill really, really smoothly. Like I didn't stumble at all. It just all felt natural and flowed. It could also be something as simple like, I took my nutrition on time. So we'll eat different things throughout the race. Um, I eat a lot of goo energy gels um, and drink a lot of energy drinks. It's just, it's kind of like, kind of like Gatorade, but like way better than Gatorade. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know this stuff. I'll have those at specific intervals throughout the race, but every race is kind of different. So some races I have more dialed in than others. So like that race in California, I did that so many years that, I just basically knew what the nutrition strategy was. And so like, what I'm saying is that even something as simple as like, I finished my bottle in the amount of time I was supposed to, and I had my gels all like right on schedule that all like boosts my morale. I'm just like, okay, this race is going well. Like I'm on schedule, like everything's, you know, working, it's all clicking off and just everything is smooth. Um, you just kind of get all those little success balls rolling and they just keep snowballing into hopefully a really good performance. I'm desperately afraid I'm going to bore you by asking the following question because I'm kind of afraid that I'm asking the same question a couple different ways. But I'm so curious that I'm going to try and I hope you'll forgive me for doing so. I guess I'm curious as to the relationship between what we might call mindfulness and mindlessness as it pertains to your work. Can you talk a little bit about how and why you pursue mindfulness? It's like hyper acute awareness and how and why and when you pursue mindlessness, just getting the job done. Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting question and that's that's probably a very valuable question. So I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So yeah, so mindfulness and mindlessness <laughs> deciding when to use which one. I think it's not really an either or scenario for me. It's more both. I think ideally I use both of those things at the same time, but in different ways, if that makes sense. So while I'm doing a long race, uh, say, say a race, like a hundred mile race, it's really long. (laughs) So if you think about it too much, it just seems overwhelming. And I think because of that, if you're on mile one, thinking ahead to mile 99 and how much farther you have to go, it's, it's going to be pretty defeating. So I think because of that aspect, I try to employ mindlessness where it's just like, I'm not running a hundred miles. I'm just running through these mountains, you know, and eventually I'm going to get all the way around this mountain and there will be a finish line, but I'm not going to think too much about the miles I have to go. I'm just going to kind of 
turn off my brain and run whatever mile I'm in. So you more or less try to do that throughout the whole race so that mentally you don't get overwhelmed. But while you're doing that, you still have to be mindful (laughs) of where you are in the race, if that makes sense. So they kind of have to coexist because if you're not mindful of where you're at in the race and what you're doing, you're likely to mess something up, which may not have a very big impact initially, but could have a really big impact later on. So, so say I run the first 20 miles mindlessly and I don't remember to take any of my nutrition. I'll probably actually feel all right for a while, but when I get to mile 50, I'm probably going to start paying the price for not eating or drinking anything in that first 20 miles. So even though I may have done a really good job of being mindless, I paid the price later on because I wasn't mindful and taking care of myself. So that is how I would describe it. You have to be mindful about what you're doing, but when it comes to the big picture of what's left to be done, that's where you kind of have to shut your brain off. If that makes any sort of sense. (laughs) No, it makes perfect sense. And indeed your response illustrates sort of a problem with the premise of the question you see in my mind's eye one would need to toggle back and forth between mindfulness and mindlessness. But what you're illustrating is perhaps the complexity of having to be both mindful and mindless rather simultaneously. You have to be mindful of certain matters and mindless about other matters, and just knowing how to navigate that is perhaps what separates great ultra runners from elite ultra runners. I'm curious about the degree to which you are thinking about these types of things at all when you're running. Like, am I being mindful? Am I, is my mental acuity there? Or are you not really having to think about that so much in your work as a runner? I do like the aspect of disconnecting. In fact, early on in the sport, I, I was known for not even wearing a watch when I would race. But then I had an instance where I messed up my nutrition. <laughs> and because usually time is, is, is how we, we kind of strategize nutrition. You know, you take so many calories per hour, roughly. And so if you're going to do that, it helps to know <laughs> what the time is. <laughs> so then I did start wearing a very basic watch. But like, that's probably one of the major things I'm thinking about when I'm racing is, okay, how much time has passed? Um, Not because of my pace, but because of when do I need to eat this next thing that's sitting in my pocket? So there's those things going on in your head. Mainly runners are just like, we're very in tune with our bodies. So we're always doing these little like checks of like, okay, how's everything feeling? You know, (laughs) like, 
you know, I don't know, like, how are the feet? How are the knees? Like, how is the breathing? Is anything sort like, you're just kind of like, okay, check, check, check. Like, okay, everything's good. Or this isn't good. How do I fix that? You know? So there's kind of like all these little micro calculations that are constantly going on. And then some runners get really caught up in the pace, you know, you know, where they're at exactly in the race. And I try not to get too caught up in that. But yeah, so there's there's just kind of like a lot of micro calculations that are going on while you're out there. And you're, you study the guys around you too. You, you know, you try to get a feel for like, okay, who's laboring, you know, and who seems really smooth, like they're not even trying. And am I stronger on the climbs or is he stronger on the climbs? And is he better on the descents or am I better on the descents? And, and you're just paying attention to all this stuff and and I guess it sounds like a lot. It sounds really stressful, but it's it, it's really not really that bad. It's it's really pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. Man. But but there's kind of a lot that's going on, and you can make as much or as little out of it as you want. And I think that's kind of like the trick is finding your mental game and what works for you. Because some guys will just totally psych themselves out while they're out there. Yeah, I'm interested in your work as a runner but i would be remiss in not diving into the fact that you you are a racer you are a competitor you're playing to win and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that competition and racing plays in your work competition and racing actually plays a really big role in my work. Let me explain it like this. So the world of professional athletics is really, really weird. You look at athletes and you're like, how do you make money doing that? I guess for some like football players, the NFL, the NBA, I guess it's pretty obvious how it works. There's franchises and there's owners and there's television and there's there's a lot of people watching these sports and, and they're generating a lot of money and then they're paying the players money and everybody in America is crowding around their TV on Sunday afternoon to watch the football games. It's fairly obvious how they're making money. But then you look at other sports where they may not even be televised or they're not as much in the public eye or they're, they're a really big deal, but only within like the small niche of the sports world that they're in. Um, and that's kind of where, where my sport falls. So ultra running is like a really big deal to ultra. Yeah. Right. They think it's like the be all and end all. And they're like, Oh, everybody knows these guys. Like, you know, like, Oh, you've never heard of so-and-so. And, it, and like any normal person on the street is like, no, I have no clue what, what you're talking about. Like <laughs> this means nothing to me. So then you take that sport and you're like, well, how do you make money off of that? And what it comes down to basically is companies that have products that are used within this realm. And then they're sponsoring athletes to get, you know, brand presence and to push these products. So basically I am a marketing tool. So I do something in the outdoors, I run, and I, I am sponsored by the North Face and then a few, few other companies as well. But the North Face sells 
things that get people outdoors. And I am outdoors. That's what I do. I, I bring that up because this is where the distinction of racing comes in. So for me, racing is very important because that's where we bring a lot of attention to the brand. So if I go out and run a race and I do really well and I finish on the podium, then that gets the North face that gets their name out there. You know, people see me and they see me in the North face gear and they associate me with the North face, you know, and then that just generates publicity. And then that basically generates dollars for the North face. And then that validates them to pay me. So the racing is super important for me. That's one of the best ways for me to be present in the sport and to get in the eye of the public. Um, but the bread of what I do is racing. Um, that's, that's basically what got me where I am. And that's what like makes me valuable to a brand. Now, I don't know how it's going to make you feel when I say this, but you're one of the best ultra runners in the world. And well, first, uh, congratulations, because that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I wonder about the degree to which and the ways in which you are motivated by the desire to win and to beat the next guy. I, I think it's a huge factor for me. I'm a very competitive person. I've been competitive probably pretty much all my life. Like I, I probably like came out of the womb competitive. <laughs> um, and I like racing. I like, I largely like competing with myself, making myself better. And then of course that, that ends up taking me into the world of competing against other people. Um, and I enjoy that too. If, if I'm in a race, I get re really competitive. Like, when I first started kind of down this professional path, I, I remember like I would go to races and I just like, I just wanted to be at the top. Like you get on the line and it's like, I have to win this, which sounds kind of bad. Like I was already competitive, but then when I started winning stuff, that felt so good. <laughs> like it recalibrates. You. Yes. And, and once you have the taste of that, you just want it again. And again, like it's, it's kind of addictive. It's just like the best feeling in the world, but that now it's like, okay, now what do I win next? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it can be very dangerous. It can also be, I think kind of good because it keeps you charging ahead, but you do have to like, be mindful of what it does to you. Cause it is like very addictive. And it was just like, I would get on start lines and like, I just wanted to win. Like success was to win. Yeah. I pretty much am an all or nothing racer. Like yeah. it's kind of like Talladega nights, you know, he's like, you ain't first or last, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it, that was, that can very easily become the motto. It's like, well, I want to win. And if I don't win, well, like people be like, Oh, but you got second. Like, that's really, I like, I, but second means nothing to me. <laughs> like I just wanted to win. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it can be unhealthy, but you can also be like that 
and then still kind of learn to be like, okay, I didn't win and life goes on. And now I'm just going to like go back to the drawing board and try and win the next time. Like you can still kind of do it in a healthy way. I don't know. I feel like some people are out there like, oh, I'm trying to have a good day and we'll see where I place. And where I'm out there, like running at the front hog wild, because I'm like, I got to stay with these guys because I got to beat these guys because this is my only like uh, measure of success. <laughs> and, I, and I'll like hang on to packs that like at paces that sometimes feel stupid. Like I'll be like, I don't know if any of us can keep this up. Right. But I want to race for the win. And these are the guys at the front. So I'll just like hang in there and go for it anyways. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, the, the competitive spirit in me is, is really strong. <laughs> uh, first of all, I have to say that I'm thrilled that Ricky Bobby of Talladega Nights got quoted <laughs> on the Studs podcast. This is a, a source of tremendous joy for me. Thank you so much for referencing that film. I never thought it would have happened. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it's very applicable. It's just like maybe more applicable than some people might might realize <laughs> no, you nailed it um i want to dive a little further into the competition dialogue do you have in your mind at least rivals in the sport um in general the sport is really friendly like most of the guys in the sport were, were friends but yeah of course like when you're training you'll have in the back of your mind or maybe the front of your mind <laughs> thoughts of who it is you want to beat in your next race or an upcoming race. I don't have any like enemies in the sport, but I definitely have people that I want to beat, like even friends that I want to yeah. beat. And there are some guys that are easier to lose to and some guys that are harder to lose to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I think that's, that's very human. You know, there's, some people you get along with better than others, you know, everybody's, you know, pretty cordial when all the fighting is done. <laughs> you know, surely it's a civil enterprise and I would never, you know, seek to even imagine that you have enemies per se, but I am curious about the rivalries. And part of the reason I'm curious about the rivalries is because I watched this video uh, about you, a, a short film that was made about you. I'll link to it in the show notes of this podcast and people who want to learn more about you and to watch you work, they'll have the opportunity to do that. And a lot of the focus of this particular documentary film about your running life focuses on the UTMB or the, the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. This is quite a race and i'd like you to describe what the utmb is and then maybe i guess i wonder what it feels like to show up in chamonix and run this race yeah utmb is well it's a phenomenal race it's a race that starts and ends in chamonix france but it goes through three countries so if you're in chamonix france the mountains, they shoot up very abruptly. Like I think Chamonix is like a thousand meters in altitude. So like 3000 feet and the top of Mont Blanc is like 
15,000 feet. So what is that like 4,000 meters? Um, these mountains are very aggressive. It's about a hundred miles to circle the mountain. It doesn't summit the mountain. It just goes around the mountain and it also passes through three countries. It starts in France, it goes through Italy, then it goes into Switzerland, and then it comes back into France. So it's really just this kind of epic route because you circle the whole mountain, you go through all three countries, you start and end in the same spot, you don't repeat anything. It's pretty much all trail. You know, there's a few roads through the towns and things. It's just stunning. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's 100 miles, which is basically a standard race distance. So it's just the perfect setup. The European culture is very enthusiastic about ultra running. They flood the town of Chamonix the week of this race, um, and they flood the towns along the race course. As you pass through, you have this Tour de France-esque atmosphere of just hordes of people just lining streets and yelling and it is definitely one of the most competitive and just largest races in the world um it's very prestigious if you win the utmb my, my first time there racing for the ccc was was really really good i actually ended up winning the ccc race and i was the first american male to do that and so that was really exciting. And then I came back to do the UTMB. I haven't had the beginner's luck with the UTMB as I did with the <laughs> CCC, uh, which is which is fine. I kind of lose track now, but I think I've raced it four or five times. And I finished in the top 10 twice and I finished. And I, then I've had twice where I actually didn't even finish. I, I pulled out partway through, um, which was unfortunate. But um, it... it it seems to be a, a harsh reality in, in, in this, this sport that I participate in. <laughs> in one case, you got helicoptered out. I think it was 2018. Yeah, that sounds about right. And if you're comfortable talking about it, I'd like to know what that experience was like. I got helicoptered out, but it, it wasn't really anything super traumatic. I think my race was going really well that year. And then it started going south. <laughs> it started not going well, <laughs> which often happens. What it ended up being, I guess, was my peroneal tendons. They got really aggravated somehow. And they they just hurt a lot. Like I was going up this climb and it was taking forever and I could barely walk, like let alone run. I didn't know what was wrong and I didn't want to damage it to the point where, you know, it might mess up my career or something. <laughs> and then I also just reached this point where I didn't feel responsible being out there on the course because <laughs> you know, I worked in the mountains of Colorado for years and helped with search and rescue. And I was like, people drag themselves in too far and then have to get helped out. And that's, that's not good. So I, so I decided I was going to drop out of the race. I didn't want to take a helicopter, but the UTMB kind of has their certain way of doing things. And they seem to like to use the helicopters. 
<laughs> so I, and I think it might've been because I was an elite racer. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, it was convenient. The, the helicopter had me back to town in like five minutes. <laughs> it's like, it was kind of disheartening. I was like, guys, I just went like all through the night. I've been out here for like 80 miles. Like it's taken me forever to get to this point and you just flew me back to where i started in five minutes like <laughs> like this is really kind of anticlimactic like but yeah it was an issue with my tendons and basically i just like i took some time off and it healed up and i'm actually dealing with an injury right now but it's not even on that foot so yeah that's the story behind that helicopter evacuation yeah hey I don't want to push too far into your pain, but it does seem clear that pain is a central part of what you do for a living. You have to endure extreme pain. There are these scenes in the documentary film where you're stopping at, you know, a refueling slash check-in station. And man, you look rough. I mean, you <laughs> just look like... You know, it's bona fide torture. And I would be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to talk about how you negotiate severe pain and discomfort. You're correct in that it's it's a really big part of what I do. I will also say that there are different kinds of pain. And in that documentary, there's probably multiple types of pain that that you'll see me in in that in that film the the scene that you're talking about i think i actually felt sick like i was cold and you need to like eat and drink but the only thing that sounded good was hot water <laughs> and that doesn't do much for you except for hydration but yeah the pain is really just really immense sometimes i mean i would say that that pain there is more of like things are starting to fall apart and this is the pain you really don't want. There are other clips in that film where I'm racing and you see me in a ton of pain, but I'm still like running really hard. And that's like a different kind of pain. That's like, I'm really hurting, but I'm hurting because I'm pushing myself so hard and actually like the body is still working. It's just working at its like, upper limit do you love that yeah i love that like i love that pain like i mean i hate that pain but i love that pain the pain where like everything's falling apart and like i'm spiraling into like i don't know illness and injury that's no fun that pain is no fun does it make you angry when i'm like spiraling into like illness and injury type of pain yeah it's really frustrating you train for like weeks and months trying to prepare this race. And sometimes like the training can be good. And sometimes whether it's a tactical error in the race or whether it's just, I don't know, just, it just wasn't your day. Sometimes it just all falls apart. And that is really frustrating. Cause it's like, man, I just worked at this for like five months and this just all unraveled like, you know, within 50 miles or from the gun, like, you know, some, sometimes you can tell like within the first like 10 miles that like, this is not my day. 
Um, and that's, that's super frustrating. It threatens to make you angry. I guess it's then kind of your choice of how you respond to it. But that other pain where I'm like, I'm having a good race and I'm in some of the most miserable pain of my life, but it's self-inflicted. It's just like, I'm running really hard. That's great. I mean, it's great and it's terrible, but it's great. (laughs) You love it and you hate it all at the same time. It makes you feel alive, like maybe like an adrenaline rush to it that you can push your body this hard and still be getting it to respond and just like pushing yourself that deep into a dark space, but you can still go. And that's, that's pretty fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. It's really inspiring too. And maybe this is a little less inspiring, but I desperately want to know what it's like when your body's not doing quite what you want it to do, whether it's a matter of pain or just performance, perhaps an intersection of the two, and you're way behind. Like you showed up at this race to win. And after a certain amount of time, maybe you realize you're just, you're way behind and you're just not fighting for the win anymore. You know, you're basically just hoping you could finish maybe with a respectable time. I wonder how you compete and how it affects your mindset when you know you're way behind and you're not fighting for the win anymore. Yeah, this is really hard for me because I really thrive on fighting for the win. Like I talk about fueling during a race, like taking in calories and drink. That's like another form of calories for me. Just knowing that I'm in it and that I'm in the fight for the lead, that makes me feel like there's hope. That makes me feel like it's fun. That makes me feel like people are paying attention and they care about what I'm doing. That fuels me. So when what you're describing happens, when you're like way behind and it basically seems like a lost cause, that's, that's really hard for me. And that's probably something like I still need to work on. Within ultra running, I don't feel like I've had many races where I end up in that position and I save it. <laughs> I feel like usually once I get there, I'm down and out. Like, <laughs> you know, I may finish, but I, I don't usually like rebound. There's been a few instances where I've been passed and then I've regained the lead and then I have one. Or I remember a race at the North Face 51 year against an American runner named Hayden Hawks. And I remember him being ahead of me and not being able to see him and feeling super uncomfortable about that. And it just felt like it was like my nightmare. Cause I'm like, man, I'm like, he's getting away. Like, I feel like I'm falling off. I'm in danger of not being in the fight here for the win. And that was really uncomfortable. I really didn't like that. And, and then fortunately things changed and we ended up neck and neck and then we were fighting for the win for the next like 47 miles <laughs> it was it was like a very stressful 47 miles i imagine but for the most part like when i end up behind yeah it's you'll hear some coaches or some runners talk about having like a b and c goals 
basically to prepare yourself for when that does happen. So you have like a goal or like maybe a goal is I want to win this race. And then like B goal is maybe like, maybe I won't win, but I'll get like, I'll beat my time from last year and I'll be top 10. And then maybe C goal is like, I just want to finish because I value finishing. And so some runners will set goals like that so that they have things to fight for kind of regardless. And then it keeps you going. I guess I never really sit down and set B and C goals. (laughs) 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 And that's probably, that's probably why I struggle so much with what you're describing. Um, Yeah. But I mean, I am very driven by doing my best though. So you, I would be doing myself a disservice, I guess, not to mention that. So I am very driven by, by giving something my all. So sometimes I'll come in winning a race and I'll be like sprinting into the finish. Like it's like, there's somebody 10 meters behind me and they're like 12 minutes behind me. And people are, you know, people are kind of like, why is he sprinting so hard? Like there's nobody around. And it's like, I'm sprinting so hard because it's, it's a race and I'm supposed to get to the finish as fast as I can. And I won't be doing myself justice if I just run in easy. Like that's my mindset. So then sometimes I have races where I don't finish, like I don't win. I finish farther back, but I still come in like sprinting to the finish because it's still a race and I'm still supposed to try. And in my mind, a race is trying to get from point A to point B as fast as you can, preferably faster than everyone else can, but like primarily as fast as you can personally. So I'll still come in like in 10th place, like guns amazing, yeah. <laughs> you know, but even so it's hard to keep that going when you're like, I'm not going to win this one. Yeah. I imagine it's very real. And then like part of the reason that you work so assiduously is so that you can capitalize on the relationships you have with sponsors. We had discussed this momentarily earlier on. If you're willing to, I'd like to take a, a deeper dive into it. Is that cool with you? Yeah, that's fine. Like, how do you court sponsors and how do they court you? That's a good question. And I think a lot of people wonder that every now and then you get a message from another runner that's like, Hey, I want to, like, I want to be a professional runner. Like, how do I do that? You know, how do I get sponsors? And, And it's always kind of a funny question. Start winning more. Basically you're, you answered it <laughs> like, which sounds kind of cruel, but there are athletes out there with sponsorships who are very good, but there's also probably athletes out there who are even better that don't have any sponsorships. It's kind of like having the right performance at the right time, sometimes knowing who to reach out to or being in a circle where you get noticed, um, or just, I don't know, some brands are looking for like a certain vibe, you know, they're, they're interested in how you perform, but they're also kind of interested in how you come across like in your lifestyle or in your approach to the sport. It's just kind of like a no rules world. And the way I got into it was I ran a big race on the East coast called the JFK 50 mile. There was a guy in the race named Rob Carr, who is actually one of my teammates now 
with the North Face. And that year, Rob Carr was on fire. He was basically just winning everything he entered. And he was in that race. I didn't know he was in that race, so I maybe would have been more nervous. <laughs> but he was in that race. Um, so I had like box one checked. It was competitive in the sense that Rob was there. And then the race itself was historic. It was old. It had been running for many, many years. It's like the oldest race in the U.S. So it had a lot of history to it. So we basically knew what a good time on that course was because so many guys had already run it before. And then the third component was that it's a big race. It's the largest field for an ultra in the U.S., which is still kind of nothing compared to some of the European races. But for the U.S., it was large in numbers. So it had the numbers, it had the competition, and it had the history. And so when I ran it that year and I ended up winning it, one, I beat Rob, so that turned a ton of heads. Two, I won a race with a lot of people in, so that looks good. And three, I ended up running... At that time, I ran the third fastest time in history and the only two guys faster than me, they ran a few minutes faster than me. And uh, the race director claimed that they ran it in like better race conditions and everything. Anyway, so it just, it just got a lot of attention. It was just like, we can look at this performance and see that it's good. That also happened right around, I guess, the time that Nike was starting to get into this whole ultra running and trail running world. And they were building this team of young up and coming runners. And that's exactly what I was. <laughs> and so they ended up offering me, me a contract. And that was how I got my foot in the door. And then it, it gave me the opportunity to travel internationally to races. It gave me the the opportunity to have some support to not make like my whole living off of it, but make some extra money. And it just opened a lot of doors. And I used that to basically build up a reputation in the sport. And then when I got to the end of that contract, I had a lot of options. Like, you know, it was like, I can stay here with Nike. I can pursue things with another brand. And actually, as that contract was ending, I had another perfect race <laughs> and I won another really competitive race. And like, it was a really good performance for me. And it was right when I was trying to negotiate deals after that race, actually, it was like offers went up and it, it was just the perfect storm again. And I actually do work with an agent and whatnot. So sometimes, yeah, it's, it's really kind of a wild and sort of anything goes world like there aren't many rules <laughs> yeah how much negotiation goes into this let's take north face for example they make an offer to you you have an agent your relationship with them is not entirely exclusive but you're beholden to each other it's a relationship how do you decide your value that that's the million dollar question. And there's like, there's kind of no answer. Yeah. So this is kind of why I have an agent. If you get to know me, like I'm very competitive in the realm of running, but like my running lifestyle and the rest of my lifestyle are like pretty different. I, I tend to be very laid back and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a wheeler and dealer. I'm not, and I'm not a businessman. Um, and I don't like that side of it. Yeah. So for me doing all that negotiation stuff, when it came 
time to renew contracts and things. I did not like that. That was really uncomfortable and like stressful for me. That was more or less why I started working with an agent. Cause I was like, I don't like doing this stuff. I don't like feel very qualified and I'm not like, I just don't like these conversations. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably too nice to be a good negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> so the agent does the negotiating and there is a fair amount of negotiating that goes on sometimes, um, especially because I work with multiple sponsors. You have to make sure that like everybody has their piece of the pie, but you're not like sharing pieces of the pie. Like, but I, I think I strayed from your original question, but you determine your worth is like the million dollar complicated, stressful question. Like my agent, I think said to me once, your worth is whatever you can get somebody to pay you. You're 32 years old. You're probably not going to be winning too many races at age 58. The wolf's at the door. You've been dealing with some nagging injuries. And I hope that they pass. But I just wonder how you wrap your heart and mind around the possibility that at some point perhaps even soon, you might have to deal with the fact that your best days as a runner are behind you. How do you grapple with those thoughts and feelings? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think that's something that like kind of every runner fears, not just elite runners. I think what a lot of people like about running is they like getting better at running, <laughs> you know, but age is real. And at some point we all start slowing down when you get to that point where it's like, you're not getting faster anymore. I guess that's just kind of something we all hope to put off for as long as we can, but it's inevitable that we'll eventually get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I think we can make it tough to face that. I don't know that it has to be tough because I think our relationship with the sport can still be very positive and can continue to grow and evolve it just might not grow and evolve in terms of speed especially like with dealing with this injury recently like one thing i've really come to long for is just like my health of just like being able to go out and have a run that doesn't hurt just having a pain-free run like even if it's not fast run just a pain-free run yeah so you know i i think for one thing like moving forward i would just like to be able to like just participate in running. And I realized that at some point, you know, I'm not going to be the guy winning the races and I'm not going to be getting faster and that my best days will have been behind me. But, you know, I think that as I would move into those years, I would want to just still be able to enjoy the sport. So just be like, you know what? I still love just being outside. Like I just still love being in the mountains. And that is something I would like to maintain well into my years. And then I think another thing to focus on would be to like find a way to stay active within the running community and, and, and do something to give back. Maybe you're starting to mentor the, up, the, the guys who are coming behind you, or maybe you're managing a team rather than running on a team, or maybe you're coaching a team of high school students, um, helping other people like 
to climb the ladder that you already climbed. I think those are all things that can be like a healthy outlet for dealing with that transition. Fortunately, like for ultra running and for endurance sports, like your, your thirties can still be some really good years, like some of your best actually. So I'm still hopeful that I haven't run my best race yet, (laughs) but I also have to be realistic in that like, well, maybe I have. Like maybe that race I ran a few years ago, maybe that will be the highlight of my career. If it is, I, you know, I need to find a way to be okay with that. That's weird to think about. Yeah. Well, you seem to have a lot of perspective around all of this. You also seem to have a lot of humility and patience around it. And it makes me curious And if you don't want to discuss this on record, just tell me and we won't. But you're raised in a missionary family. And I can't help but wonder about how faith and how spirituality guide your work as an ultra runner. Is that something that you're comfortable sharing? Uh, Yeah, we can chat about that. This is probably like something that has evolved a bit over the years. I think as I got more and more into this sport and I was like, I went from just kind of like a kid who runs to like a kid who people actually knew who he was when he ran. As weird as it sounds like I became somebody, like I became somebody people knew, I became somebody people paid attention to. With that in relation to my faith, it was always like, well, this is quite a gift. Now I have a voice that people pay attention to and I can use it to do good things. And so like that was pretty big for me early on and just like trying to shed a positive light on the world through the spotlight that I had stumbled into. I I think another like simple part of it Running and training gives me a lot of time alone and it gives me a lot of time to think and process. Basically, like it gives me time to pray. I was just out today, like on a ride, and I basically was just having this conversation in my head or with God or however you want to explain it. I'm just at this stage in my journey where I have a lot of questions. Like, I, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, I grew up in a Christian family. You, you know, you were young and you, you just kind of did it. Um, And now I'm older and I think for myself, I just have questions and I think that's okay. Like, I think it's good to have questions. And so just like I was out riding today for training and I was just like having this conversation, talking things out, I guess you could say between me and God, (laughs) that's really valuable for me to have that space and that that space is created within like my training because the world is like a really noisy place right now yeah. <laughs> with like smartphones and everything. There, it just seems like there's always noise and there's always someone with opinion and there's always, there's just always something going in your ears. My training is kind of like the one segment of my life where I usually have that stuff off. That's, that's really good for me. Is it a meditative endeavor for you? Is running wrapped up in meditation, sometimes prayer, often introspection? Yeah, probably often introspection. 
Yeah, sometimes prayer, like that's probably one of the most common places I'll like pray or just like share thoughts internally. But uh, meditation, I don't, I'm not sure. I feel like I'm never quite sure what counts as meditation. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, isn't it? but being outside, like being in the woods or being on a mountain, that's just like where stuff feels really real for me. And I, I like that feeling. And then there's like a, a country song that kind of references this, but there's that thought of like, like I'd rather be outside dreaming of God than than sitting in church dreaming of outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sit me down in church and I'll probably be like zoned out thinking about like anything but what I'm, you know, there for. But if <laughs> you put me outside and then I'll start thinking about the stuff I should be thinking about. <laughs> All right, Zach, you have been a splendid guest. You have taken us on the long run, an ultra marathon of sorts. You've taken us around the hill, around the bend, up to the summit, but I can't let you go without sharing with us two stories, the story of a professional triumph and a professional failure. If you could begin with a professional failure so that we could end on this sweet note of triumph. Okay, sounds great. Went over to France one year because I got invited to a race in Miu, I think is how you pronounce it. It was this race that they put on and they sold it as this basically France versus the world was what they called it. So they had a team of runners from France that they had put together and then they had uh, runners from other parts of the world. And I was part of this U S team. It was about a 50 mile course. I forget what the exact distance was. I think we just started really early in the morning, like 3am. I, in my usual fashion took off at the front. I pulled away. I was just, you know, I was just having a good day. Everything was going pretty smoothly. Partway through the race, I got caught. And I didn't like that. <laughs> so I, I pushed ahead and I, I shook that competitor off. And so then that's where I feel comfortable. Okay, I'm leading. I'm by myself. This is good. And then later I got caught again. I want to say there were two Frenchmen and they were like right behind me and we're going up this climb. And I remember the race director, he he was there spectating and he he yelled to me, Zach, you're having a great race. Like, keep it up. And I ran down into this town. I think this town was like 10 kilometers from the finish. I'm feeling good. And I remember I just kind of surged through this town, like really strong. And I think like all the fans were like really like excited and like, like he's really running hard. And I went into this climb and this climb was, it was tough. It just like, it kept going and I think it was like exposed in the sun and I just started fading and I was still winning, but I was like fading. And I got up to this aid station. I was running with a running pack and I would take the one I had off, get a new one that I had prepared and put it on. And so I did that as planned. But before the race, I had planned all the nutrition out and I saw that this aid station was so close to the finish that I was like, well, I don't need to put hardly anything in this pack because I'm like three miles away. Like I don't need hardly anything. And so I picked up this new pack, which had like barely anything in it. And I took off and I very 
quickly realized that was a huge mistake <laughs> because yeah. I ate, I think basically everything that was in the pack and then almost immediately bonked and bonking is like, you're just out of energy. Like basically you've burned up all your calories, your gas tank is empty. And even if you have the will to run, you can't really. <laughs> so like, and there's certain things that happen. Like when I bonk, my hands go tingly and sure enough, like my hands went tingly. I'm just turning into a wreck. And soon after that, I got passed. I struggled up this climb. And then there was this like last ascent. And I mean, long story short, I just, I went from first place to fourth or fifth place in like two or three miles. Oh, <laughs> and no. I, and I, it, I think at the finish, because my buddy was at the finish and he said, yeah, they were pretty much announcing that you were going to win. <laughs> oh. And then oh, no. I, I remember getting the finish and I was like, okay, it's the finish. Like, you know, I told you like, I got to run in, got to like come in hard because I was basically walking at this point. And I was like, okay, I, I got to run in. I got to run across the finish line. I thought I started running. I thought I started running. And when I saw the footage afterwards, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, I, I am not running. I was like, I thought oh, no. I was running. I was like, I am marching. Like my arms are pumping like I'm running, but my legs are just like walking, oh. like marching, like marching. Oh. And it looks hilarious. And at the finish line, there was like this little timing mat, like a little bump. And my buddy, my buddy told me that like, I was moving so badly that they were afraid that I wasn't even going to get over this little like speed bump. Oh. <laughs> and him and him and my other teammate like caught me basically as I crossed the finish line and I finished and we technically won the team competition, but I had crumbled and, and didn't get the win. I, w I was so close. And then so far, <laughs> oh, that's brutal. And it was, it was like, I was running for Nike at the time. And I actually remember afterwards, I wrote a blog post that I titled Nike fail. <laughs> Cause we were like the Nike trail team. So it was like Nike trail, but then I just titled Nike fail. <laughs> so I, was just like, I was like Icarus and I flew too close to the sun. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. Well, Hey, do me the favor and temper that story of failure flying too close to the sun with a story of triumph. There are many triumphs from which to choose. Pick one and give it to me. If you go onto YouTube and you Google Miller vs. Hawks, you'll find this film of me running a race called the North Face 50. I've won it twice with second once. And it was a year that I, I raced a new guy in the sport, a new really fast up-and-comer named Hayden Hawks. And... We just had this race neck and neck from the starting gun to the finishing tape. We were probably never more than like two minutes apart from each other. Most of the day, if we looked ahead or looked back over our shoulder, we could see the other guy. Um, and that's just kind of unheard of in an ultra race. And it went on like that for 50 miles it's pretty epic. Hayden was a really good climber. So he was kind of pulling away from me on the climbs and then I would catch him on the downs and he was just starting to like creep away from me. And I just like, I didn't like this. I was like, this is super uncomfortable. This isn't where I want to be. And we were just running at this pace that was like, 
you know, I don't know if we can do this. <laughs> like, I don't know if we can keep this up for 50 miles, you know, but we've already like started this train. So we're just going to keep it rolling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, so we just went at it, but I could never shake him completely. Like every, like you'd look back and he'd just be there. And then, you know, getting down to the final miles, I think like 10 miles to go, he was probably like, 50 to 100 yards behind me and it was just crazy how we couldn't shake each other and then I, I i finished ahead of him by like two minutes nice but that was probably like the biggest lead i had all day and it was just this really special day where everything clicked uh like all the nutrition went really well i dug myself super deep into what we call the pain cave like i just got to that point where it hurt and i just kept going and i went like so far into that world of hurt I'm not sure if I've ever been deeper in that pain cave on a day that was like still going well. Um, and I was just super proud of that day. And that was like, it was a really big point in my career and a really big success for me. Right on, man. Well, your career has been so splendid and I'm so grateful that you've been willing to carve out some time to share with us your triumphs and your failures and your story. What you do is almost like desperately impressive. You know, this, of course, being a podcast about work, I have the good fortune of diving into the work lives of people from all different walks of life and who engage in all sorts of different professions. But I dare say that none of them work as hard as you work. It's quite overwhelming, in fact, just to imagine what life is like in that pain cave of yours. And it's quite heartening to, in listening to you, learn about how much joy you find in it. Your perspective around what you do is really inspiring. I'll never know what it's like to run an ultra marathon and if i'm to be honest with you i'm not sure i really want to know <laughs> but i think your commitment to that work and to that community it's really awesome man for that reason and because it turns out you're just a real sweet clever guy it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast thank you for joining me thank you for having me it's been wonderful on this end as well all right, kids, that's me trying to keep up with Zach Miller. If you want to learn more about Zach, if you want to see him in action, check out the show notes to this episode. I link you to a short documentary film made about him, and I also link you to a clip from the epic race against Hayden Hawks that Zach mentioned in our conversation. Summer is on its way, my friends. I hope your hearts are warm. I hope your spirits are bright. I hope you're not languishing. I hope you're thriving. I hope there's joy in your world. Look, I ain't gonna lie, these are funky times. But I have high hopes for you, my dear listeners. One of which is to see you next week. I hope to see you next week. Until then, please be kind. Stay loving. We'll talk with you soon.